Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, it is good to be here and good to be with you all. I am wearing a t-shirt, casual Sunday. Because I had to do a wedding last night in Bryan, Texas. So I had to wear a tie, which means I'm, i got to be as casual as possible. I was going to go with shorts this morning, and then I remembered I've skipped leg day every day. So <laughs> stuck with the jeans, but got to get comfortable here um, this morning. Uh, I was up in Bryan, Texas to officiate a wedding, and... Um, this is something I, I do every now and then. This is this is a referral, and so not a couple that I knew. And, and so when I go do a wedding like this, or any speaking engagement, last October, university in South Carolina had me out to teach some classes. Um, there's a contract that I send, and that I get signed, and that we work out, right? You, you want to make sure that I know what you expect of me. I'm teaching how many classes? I'm speaking how many times? What times? What days? Am I supposed to be doing anything between that? You know, where am I staying? How are we compensating different things? Um, and so, you know, I went up. We had a contract. We had an agreement together. If I do this, then you'll do this. Um, but there was a different type of relationship at a wedding, right, that was indirectly involved and not directly. And it's, it's not a paper-type relationship. It's a ring-type relationship. We might use the word covenant. There was a vow taken last night between Michael and, and Laura that they would love one another unconditionally. And it's, it's vitally important, particularly at a wedding, that you don't mix up these two kind of relationships, right? Now, my relationship with the bride and the groom was not covenantal. <laughs> it was not unconditional. One of us could do something wrong, and the expectations could be not met, and things would happen as a result. And hopefully they don't go into marriage thinking their marriage is contractual. If they do, right, you can probably guess pretty accurately that it's just a disaster in waiting. Marriage is an unconditional thing if it's a promise. Marriage is is not a if you do this, then I promise to love and support and be faithful and be loyal. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series on Christianese. We're looking at different words and concepts that Christians hold dear, looking at ways that perhaps we've misunderstood them or misused them. We've done holy, holiness. We've done sin. Uh, we are doing this morning gospel, the word gospel, um, which if you're familiar with Christianity, is one of our more important words or concepts. Um, it's kind of what defines us. It's kind of what we're all about or supposed to be all about. Um, it's one of those things that sometimes we assume we know. What is the gospel? Well, it's the gospel. It's sometimes hard to flesh out a definition. And, you know, if you were to Google what is the gospel, you'll find hundreds of different variations and answers. Some pretty similar, just worded differently, and some pretty, pretty opposite ideas of what the gospel is. Um, I did a quick Google search a few days ago and found a uh, blog post, I think on page one on Google, that had just collected like 150 different definitions of the word gospel. Basically, for every author that there's been and every preacher that there's been, there's been a specific definition of the word gospel. 
And I started the sermon talking about contracts and covenants because I do think these are the two most important concepts for us if we want to get the gospel right. I think the biggest mistake we can make, James B. Torrance says, it's the great sin of all human hearts. It's the the biggest temptation for us. To take the gospel and to turn it into a contract instead of letting it be a covenant, an unconditional relationship turned into a conditional relationship, an if-then sort of proposal. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open up with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. It probably won't surprise anyone that I think we have misunderstood in some ways and miscommunicated the word gospel. There wouldn't be this sermon series, right, if I didn't have some sort of feeling like that. And so I want to look at a couple of places. We'll, we'll look at two places in the scriptures where we can flesh out a kind of biblical, more faithful idea about what the gospel might be. But I'm assuming most of us actually have some sort of shared knowledge and experience when it comes to being presented with the gospel. Um, I think a lot of us as children, and then maybe even as adults, have experienced what I experienced as a child. My, my exposure to the gospel, um, I would say, is a very contractual gospel. That's what I was given as a kid. If I do this, then I receive this from God. It is, I, I believe, been the most historically popular version of the gospel in the last few hundred years. It was made very famous by Campus Crusade with a, a pamphlet, an idea of the four spiritual laws. Now, I never came into direct contact with these four spiritual laws because I'm not old, but... I believe there was a pamphlet and they handed out on campus back when they printed things again. Um, it was something to the effect, right, of like God loves you and wants a relationship with you, but because you've sinned, you're alienated from God and deserving punishment. But the third one, Jesus has become a bridge between you and God. And so therefore, if you repent and believe, then God will forgive you and you can enter into this new life and have hope for heaven. It was made popular um, and, and kind of expansive in our culture by Billy Graham and his more literal crusades, his revivalist um, um, preachings and meetings as he, he traveled around the country, um, indeed the world, kind of presenting a, a similar version here of the gospel. Um, when I was growing up, gospel presentations, um, I would hear them very often. They were characterized by two things. I couldn't have told you this as a kid. Looking back on it, it seems pretty obvious. They were escapist and they were individualistic. I'm already seeing nods and hearing, mm-hmm. So it was, it was individualistic. The gospel made me think about me and my relationship with God. It was introspective, usually not in a positive way. We'll get into that later. But it, was, it was a me and God type of thing. And it was escapist, which is to say that the point of it was not necessarily the here and now. It was to escape a certain future that I otherwise would be going towards. You know, get out of hell and go to heaven. And it all turned on what I would do in this one moment. This is why I might say it's contractual. If, then. The idea was, God is very angry with me. Now, I can understand that. I was a, I was a, I was just, I was a kid. You could do bad things. But there was good news. 
Jesus had made a way for me to receive a gift of salvation, to receive hope for heaven. And it all turned on whether I would repent, whether I would believe, whether I would say the prayer. Different people have their different things for it, right? And God's relationship to me, I mean, his very relationship to me, all hinged on what I would do. Do you see the contractual nature of this? If I weren't doing anything, if I kept going in my own ways, it continued to be wrath and damnation. But if I would do this, the contract clicks in. The gift is accepted. The corner is turned. Now God loves me, and I receive forgiveness. Gospels like this, they are... They appeal to our false motives. They, they appeal to the motive of fear. I was scared into being a Christian when I was a kid. Right? It's effective. You know, kids are pretty smart. I thought I was a pretty smart kid. You know, say a prayer or go to hell. Okay, yeah, I'll say the, I'll say the prayer. Sign me up. <laughs> Unfortunately, the same type of gospel presentations, they play on fear, but they also, they're really poor at providing you assurance. Actually, because of that contractual nature to it. Because you're always left, at least I was, with this question, have I met the conditions? Have I fully met these conditions? Because the grace was conditioned. And so, for me, in my context, local Baptist private schools, I had the sinner's prayer. And I said that thing hundreds and hundreds of times. And I threw out online earlier this week, anyone else say something like the sinner's prayer multiple times in case it didn't stick the first time? And just dozens of people all over the place. Yes, 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 yes. I was told I had to It's not enough just to say it, okay? That's easy. Anyone can just say it. But you have to believe it in your heart of hearts. I didn't know exactly what that was. I did know that I probably don't have too much there. And I wasn't certain that I had that prayer there. And so I would try to muster up all the authenticity I had as a kid laying up at night. And say this prayer, get it stuck in there. One woman reached out to me online and, and she said, she had gotten this message too as a child, but unfortunately it had been combined with some sort of OCD that she had. So she actually was under the assumption for a couple of years in her life that God's grace was conditioned on saying the sinner's prayer an odd number of times, and not an even number of times. And she lost count. It's like funny, but also tragic. What a, what, a, what a nasty kind of combination of things colliding right there. Now, there's some problems with this idea of the gospel. I think there's some truths to it, obviously, but I think we can do better. I think we can be more faithful to the scriptures. I think we can experience it the way um, it was meant to be experienced. Um, and some of the problems I would point out is... is one, and, and I've been able to describe pretty clearly the gospel for you according to this kind of view without actually using any of the gospels. I would suggest a gospel presentation that doesn't need the gospels, 
in the stories in the Gospels is a little too small. So it's a weird, it's a weird thing, you and I as Christians. We've got a Bible. We've got Scripture we, we think God has given us. And in that Scripture, we have not one and not two and not three, but four Gospels. And the longer name in the original Koine Greek is the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to John. If you were to ask Mark what the Gospel is, he'd say, here, 16 chapters, pretty quick read. If you were to ask Matthew, he'd say, I made it a little bit longer. (laughs) Same basic story, 28 chapters, this is the Gospel. If you ask Luke, he says, it's still pretty long like Matthew's, but I add my own stuff in to help you understand too. Then if you ask John, John is like, okay, this is going to be different than the first three guys, but it's still on roughly the same level. It's a different perspective, different view of this. You've always, you always need to be aware. So a few years ago, the big buzzword in Christianity was, um, is this gospel-centered? Is this gospel-centered? Is this gospel-centered? And the question was never, is this gospel-centered? Right? Is, this, is this centered on the life of Jesus, on the teaching of Jesus, on the actions of Jesus? Um, any proclamation that doesn't have room for the actual stories, um, I think, is too small. Any proclamation that's only individualistic and can't expand to include God's idea of all creation being saved is too small. Any gospel presentation that's escapist and not transformational or new creational is, I think, a little bit too small. So what might a covenant gospel look like? What does the scriptures present to us as the gospel? Well, the word gospel in the original Greek, it's a word that means good news. It was a political word. It was a pretty common word. If Caesar were to win a a battle, this this announcer would come into the city, royal ambassador, and would say, gospel, I have good news. You're safe. War's been won. It would have been a word most likely you could have used if, if you had, you know, made a lot of money. You come home to the wife. I've got gospel. We got some coins, some denario. Good news. We see it in the gospel of Mark, right at the very beginning. Let's let Jesus define this for us. Verse 14 and 15. Now John was arrested. And Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, here it is, the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The good news here, according to Jesus, is that something has been building and it's here. The time's fulfilled. There's been this activity and push that God's been having and doing and now it's coming into fruition. And the language he uses for it is the kingdom of God. The announcement, what's the good news? It's here. It's showing up. It's arriving. Now, Jesus doesn't use the word gospel a whole lot. You won't find it a whole lot here. In the four gospels, you won't find anything like the four spiritual laws or the, the contractual, as I'm calling it, gospel presentation. You find instead a story of what God has done in Jesus. In his birth, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. 
I would suggest the New Testament, when it uses this word gospel, it retains that basic meaning, which is just simply good news. It's an announcement. It's something that's true for everybody. It's just like the news we receive. It doesn't ask your permission before it becomes news. It, it, it doesn't just involve you. It's, it's just news. You receive it. Okay, I've heard a new message. Something has changed in the world. Now, it does have individual consequences, and it does prompt an individual response. There's an individual aspect to it, of course. And if it's, it's, it's not escape. It's the language of the kingdom of God. For Jesus, the good news seemed to be that God in himself, in his work and action in person, was showing up to reorder a creation that had been disordered. God's, God was enacting his will upon creation. And as one scholar would say, the gospel seemed to be a story about how Jesus became king over creation, enthralled as the resurrected one in order to do the work of the kingdom. And this way you, you would read. So if you just kept reading Mark, you'd see Jesus doing what he's saying. So he announces the kingdom, and then he enacts it. He sees disorder, and he orders it. There's sin, and he forgives it. Someone is diseased, and he heals it. Someone has demons, and he casts them out. People have the wrong ideas about obedience or about God or certain things, and he corrects these ideas. The kingdom is arriving. The arriving reign of God is itself the good news, is the gospel that Jesus proclaims. The gospel is first an announcement, and then, of course, it has individual implications, but they come after the announcement. The focus is on the announcement. And the gospel, particularly a kingdom of God gospel, has cosmic implications. It's not just you and I who might be reordered. It's all of creation. So sometimes Paul gets a bad rap because Paul, one of the big early Christian authors, authors of a lot of our New Testament, he walks away from this kingdom of God language. And a lot of people, sometimes when they read Paul, go, why, why is such a big difference? Why is what Jesus is teaching not the same language being used by Paul? But there's actually connections here in different contexts that would explain, I think, a lot of these, these questions. For, for Paul, he starts with this idea that Jesus is king. He kind of starts after the gospel stories. He's resurrected. And for Paul, his kingdom of God language is, is usually termed more in like new creation language. God is recreating, newly creating his, his people. One day, his entire world, John and others, expand the vision of salvation to not just include human beings, but to include matter itself. All things being recreated. And note that the gospel, this announcement, it can't be. An announcement can't be conditioned on our response. It invites a response, but it's good news. It's simply good news. It's purely good news. It's just good news. And any time the gospel starts to sound like bad news, you should start to ask questions. I mean, you really should. How is this good news somehow making me afraid? How is this good news somehow hurting or shaming? The good news is always good news. doesn't matter where you are, what you've been, or what you're doing. It is good news. The kingdom of God has arrived. 
The gospel is the unalterable, unchanging story of Jesus Christ as revealed in the gospels. Now, you might notice there's a clash here between this maybe contractual gospel and this idea of more of a covenantal gospel. The, the idea Jesus is getting at when he says the time is fulfilled is, is that God's relationship toward creation has always been one of love. Theologians call this a covenant of grace. And what's happening in Jesus is God is fulfilling this covenant of grace. He's enacting his loving disposition towards his creation in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's not conditioned. It doesn't require anything from you to work or to not work. It comes to you as a fact. And then you respond, but you respond after the fact. That's different from this contractual idea of a gospel. Flip with me just to one more place so we can flesh this out a little bit more. Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 will highlight one of the, the biggest kind of tensions between these two types of ways of, of seeing the gospel. Romans 5 through 8, all three chapters, I think are a great summary of the gospel in Paul's language. Just pick up at chapter 5, read through chapter 8. Notice, notice how Trinitarian it is. There's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Spirit all over the place. Notice how revelational it is. Notice how active God's in, in it. Notice how, how much is anchored in fact and history. This has happened. Notice how gracious it is. Notice the way it includes us, but doesn't require or necessitate us to do certain things. We'll pick it up in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God. Let's read that one more time. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. It's past tense. It's something that has happened in the person and work of Jesus. We shall even more so, he says, reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more will be reconciled, will be saved by his life. More than that, in verse 11, we Rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Notice for Paul, the language of participating in what Jesus has done is anchored in the past, and the future is dynamic. So for Paul, there seems to be some sense, and he develops this throughout his letters. It's a bigger theological concept that the gospel is this announcement, something God did. God invaded the cosmos and brought salvation. And now you and I can respond to the announcement in different ways, and that'll affect how we experience it, right? Just like anything. I could make an announcement today, and you could believe it and act on it, or you could refuse to believe it and go your own way. But it doesn't change the fact that it happened or that I made the announcement. And notice the timing. When did this happen? When did God's love, when was that revealed for us? When did we see that? When were we reconciled? When were we justified? Was it after we repented? 
Was it after we had faith? Was it after we, we turned back to God, said the sinner's prayer? It was while we were still enemies. Almost as if that's kind of the point. While we were still enemies, while you still didn't want anything to do with me, unconditioned, I didn't wait for you to do something in order to alter this relationship. My love for you has been displayed unconditionally in the person and work of Christ. While we were still uh, enemies, he has died for us. We were reconciled. Now, theologians will use terms like this to talk about the way we can preach the gospel. They'll call the contractual gospels, I've called it this morning, preaching legal repentance. And they'll call the covenantal gospel that I've been describing this morning preaching evangelical repentance. Remember, the word evangelical itself, it's just a play on the actual word for gospel. We'll just say gospel repentance. Here's the difference. If you preach legal repentance, the form of it takes its shape like this. If you repent, you will be forgiven. It's a contract. If you preach gospel repentance, the form it takes is, look at what Christ has done for you. Therefore, you should repent. Therefore, you should have faith. Therefore, you should move forward. Preaching legal repentance, like we mentioned, always has to appeal and fall back on motives of fear. I've met many Christians who, in discussions, came back and they kind of felt cornered into this place where they said something to this effect. Well, why would would we even be Christians if there was no hell? And that's a, hell's a complicated thing. We're not going to talk about the nature or existence and all that about hell. But, but let me just suggest that if you're a Christian only because you're afraid of hell, that this is, again, a very small, small gospel, if not an unhealthy, unhealthy relationship that you've got going on. If hell didn't exist, and, and that idea makes you feel like, ugh, why am I wasting my life being a Christian? And these other people aren't going to get punished? Like, I think you should, you should reevaluate some things. I think in reality, so, so gospel repentance, it appeals to motives of gratitude and joy. It relies on the draw and the lure of beauty. Look at what has been done. How could you ignore that? How could you not want a piece of that? How could you not want to step into that? When someone, someone talks to me and they tell me that I can't even conceptualize Christianity without hell, how, how, why would you be a Christian? I said, because it's beautiful. I don't, I don't need the, the threat. I've seen something. It's been given to me. And I can't get my eyes off of it. Even when I try really hard, it's like a magnet. I keep being drawn back to it. Repentance and faith and holiness, they're not conditions of the covenant of God's grace. They're not tasks that have to be completed for God to show you or give you love or forgiveness. Legal repentance, this contractual gospel, has a hard time giving you assurance. You're always left asking, did I do it? Did I do it right? Did I do enough? The gospel-type preaching of, of repentance allows you to, to have this confident assurance. 
this is one of the biggest things that's changed about me spiritually as I've grown and matured theologically is I've gone from a little kid who said the sinner's prayer over and over again because I was worried to someone who is very confident. I don't want to say casual, but I might say boldly relaxed in, in God's disposition towards me. That it's not dependent on the things I have done in the past. It's not dependent on how I'm feeling right now. It's not dependent on what I might do or not do in the future. All those things are important. All those things affect me, affect my relationship with the Father. But they don't affect his disposition towards me. They don't affect what Christ has done for me. I've got confidence, assurance. When you preach legal repentance, the contractual gospel, notice the emphasis so quickly goes off of what Jesus has done onto you. What do I need to do? Have I done enough? Our needs to walk in this way, our faith. Whereas the covenantal gospel keeps the joyful focus on the good news Christ has done for us. The Father doesn't have to be conditioned into being gracious. This is this is what happens before all of this is put into play. Now, I want to do a little illustration with you, okay? I don't do a lot of stuff like this, so you'll have to bear with me, okay? But, but I want to show you um, what it might look like to think about the gospel according to chairs. Kids' chairs, to be more specifically. I miss some arm days as well, so I need some lightweight now, as we get into this, I'll kind of give you a heads up. Okay, well, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go through actually two different ways of viewing the gospel. The first we might call like the legal way of viewing. It'll be more closer to the contractual gospel. The second, I would say, is much more ancient, much more faithful to the biblical narrative. And we might call it like a healing version of the gospel, a, a recreative version of the gospel. Um, the analogies are different, I think, if you were trying to conceptualize this. In the first one, we'll notice we're in a courtroom, and God is a judge, and we're looking for a verdict that goes in our favor, or punishment that doesn't come to us. In the second one, God is a physician. He's a healer, a fixer. And we're not criminals, we're patients. And we're not looking to get out of some legal trap. We're, we're looking for life, we're looking for freedom. We're looking for new life. The last thing I'll say before we get into it is also watch how from the first one to the second one, we move from largely theoretical ideas to the second version, the covenantal version of the gospel, actually including the biblical narrative, making more sense out of all the stories after story after story after story. It's actually in the Bible. It moves a little bit out of theory and much more into the reality of the scriptures. So here we go. This yellow chair is God. And the direction it is in displays for us the direction God is facing. This chair right here will be humanity. And the direction it's facing will display the direction we are facing, towards God or away from God. We begin in the beginning. God created all things, including humanity. And he created humanity in his image that they might reflect his glory, that they might be in relationship. And then the unthinkable happens. 
truly unthinkable when you really try to wrap your mind around it. Trying God creates, invites you into this beautiful, loving relationship. And Adam and Eve sin, and they turn around. Now because of this, and because God's too holy and too righteous, because of his justice, he can't look on sin, he can't be close to sin, he can't be associated with sin, so God responds by turning his back. And this is the fundamental relationship between human beings without anything else involved. Alienation, separation. Not God coming toward us, God preparing more punishment for us. It's a negative relationship. Now there is a good part to the story, which is that Jesus has come, and Jesus uniquely does what humans never could, which is he lives a life of perfect relationship with the Father. And then, so that we might receive salvation, he takes our punishment. It's just as unimaginable as Adam and Eve. Jesus becomes sin for us. And then the Father turns his back on Jesus, and Jesus experiences God's wrath instead of us. On the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now, because this is true, it's up to you. You can repent and find God facing towards you, find his forgiveness and love, or you can stay where you've been and find God facing away from you, stuck in this separation and alienation and damnation. Now, obviously, there are truths here that are touched on. There are some things motives and themes in the, the scriptures that, that are illustrated here. But let me, just, let me just try to come up with a better way here. What if we could do this more faithfully to the narrative of scripture? You want to try? In the beginning, God created all things. And he created humanity to be in his image, and they were going to reflect his glory and live in relationship. And just as unimaginable, Adam and Eve turned. But here's the question we're going to have to ask ourselves over and over again. What does God do? Say with me, one, two, three. What does God do? Does God turn his back on Adam and Eve? No. God goes and finds them. He sits down in front of them. They've tried to flee. They went to the shadows of the garden. They're hiding from him. He shows up and goes, no, we need to talk. What is this? What's going on here? It's not too much later in the story that Cain, Adam and Eve's son, murders his brother Abel, turns away from God. What's our question? What does God do here? Obviously, he he turns his back on Cain, right? No, in this story, he goes and finds Cain. (laughs) He sits down right in front of him and says, we need to talk about this. And it was a serious sin and a very big mistake, but, but God actually protects Cain. He says, I'll put a mark of protection on you so people won't do this to you. And then God makes a promise to Abraham. 
I'll give you a son with your wife, Sarah. But Abraham and Sarah, they have trouble with their faith, and so they try to get a son a different route. They turn their back on God and God's promise. And what does God do? Does he break the promise? Does he decide to choose another person? He goes and finds Abraham. And he says, this is still going to happen. I'm still honoring this promise. And Sarah has a child. And in fact, he even says, I'm going to make a covenant of grace with the child that was born in sin, Ishmael. Later on in the narrative, David gets a promise from God. You'll be the king. Someone after you in your lineage will reign forever. And then David sees a girl bathing on a roof, turns his back. A child's born, a husband's killed. And what does God do? Obviously, he cuts off his ties with David. No. God goes and finds David. And he says, big mistake. But this is still happening. You'll have a son, Solomon. He'll continue this. And the nation of Israel is one large illustration over and over and over again of God's people turning away from God. And what does God do? Over and over and over, he sends prophets to plead with his people, to act out, to illustrate, to tell stories, to sing songs, to do anything to get his people to realize what he wants, to to make them stay facing him. Now, human beings have a problem. We, We just have a very hard time staying like that. All of humanity is, is in this predicament. So what God decides to do is he decides to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. In a very creative way, God himself becomes a human being. So imagine I'm Jesus. He becomes a human being. And whereas we could not ever turn around and stay turned around, Jesus, for us, on our behalf, picking up our human nature on his back, says... I can do this. If Adam turns you around, I'm going to turn us all back around. And now this relationship is restored. Jesus says, believe this. Repent and live into this. And, and, and just watch this throughout the Gospels. Jesus meets a woman in her fourth or fifth marriage, and she can never find satisfaction. She's turned her back on God. And, and what does God do? Well, in Jesus, he sits at her Scythe at a well and says, I'm offering you satisfaction. I'll quench that thirst. Then Jesus meets a man who's a tax collector, and he's turned his back on God. And, and what does God do? Well, in Jesus, he goes and says, hey, I'm coming to your house today, dude. We're going to eat. We're going to be friends. Salvation's coming to your house. And Jesus meets a woman caught in adultery. And she's about to be stoned and killed. And what does God do? Well, then Jesus kneels down on the ground, speaks gently. He says, you're waiting for me? I've got these guys away. They're not throwing stones anymore. I'm not condemning you. I want to be in relationship with you. My role is not to come and condemn. Look, I stood in front of the condemnation for you. I, I protected you from this. Over and over and over and over it goes. 
When we talk about attributes of God, here's one that I've never understood doesn't get brought up more. Because it strikes me, it's not a biblical word, but it strikes me when you read the story of Scripture that God comes off as relentless, exhausting in his pursuits of unity and union with his creation. The pattern over and over and over and over again is humans turn away, then God goes and finds them and seeks them and saves them and invites them to stay in this relationship. This, I would suggest, is the gospel. It's the good news that God has never abandoned you. That God will never abandon you. That God's disposition towards you is not conditioned on your actions. That in fact, it's when you turn away that it's most powerfully and graciously and, and thankfully illustrated. That he comes back and finds you. And maybe you've experienced this in your own life. I know I have. I've turned away. And then I was like, okay, I want, I just, I want to be done with this. And God goes and finds me. Like I can't get out. But he keeps sending people and messages. He's having thoughts and dreams and ideas. And I'm trying to run, and, and God's just jumping in front of me at every step. And this is the good news of God's relentlessness, of God's love toward us. Now, in a minute, we'll come and take communion. And in a very unique way, communion is an embodied way that we act out this belief, particularly the way we practice communion, open communion. In open communion, here's what we're saying. There's not a fence around this table. There's not a locked gate. You don't need a password. There's not a bouncer. Checking what you believe or don't believe, what you doubt or don't doubt, what you've done or haven't done. It's open. The invitation is for you to come. It doesn't really matter quite much who you are and what you've done. It doesn't really quite matter what you might do or not do. The focus is not on you. The focus is the one who's inviting you. There's, there's no fence here because God's posture toward us is always one of holding out Christ and saying, here's his body and here's his blood. Here's the life that I am attempting to give you.